please remain standing with me and turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 37. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and it's printed for you in your worship guide on page 5. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on all of them. And flesh came upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to the New Testament book of First Peter. Uh, you can also look along in your worship guide on page 7. And this passage is found in the Pew Bible there in front of you on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, reading through verse 9. Hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Would you pray with me this morning as we come to God's Word? Let's pray. Lord, just as sure as the sun rises this morning as your resurrection from the dead, proving that you gained victory 
over sin, Satan, and death, and proving that now those who have faith in Christ Jesus will too be resurrected on that day when you return. And Lord, it is that in that glorious hope that we trust this morning, and as we come to your word, we pray that your spirit would tend to it, that you would open our sleepy eyes, that we might see the beauty of this day that we celebrate in all its fullness, and that we might leave here differently from which we came. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What are you hoping for this morning? Maybe your hope is for something simple. You hope that the sun would rise and it would be warmer today than it's been. Maybe you hope for a good Easter lunch with family that's free from conflict. Maybe you hope that your spring break is going to create a lot of fun memories this week. Or maybe your hope is in something more significant, maybe potentially life-changing. Maybe you're hoping for a raise or a job promotion at work. Or you're hoping that your wayward son or daughter comes back to the faith. Or you're hoping that medical tests come back clean. Or you're hoping that your marriage will result in greater intimacy and connection with your spouse. See, as human beings, we're hoping for something. God's created us this way from the beginning of creation. And unlike the animals that he created, which merely rely on pure instinct and react to the moment, we as humans, we project our lives out to the future. We imagine what we would like life to be like. And as we come to Peter's first letter here, he's writing this letter about 30 years removed from Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And he's writing this letter with the express purpose to encourage the professing Christians there in Asia Minor. And these brothers and sisters were struggling because of suffering and persecution that they had experienced. And if you read this letter in its entirety, you come to see that these Christians were, were being abused by bosses that they worked for. They were being threatened by unbelieving spouses, ridiculed by those in the community around them, socially ostracized because of their faith in Christ. Do you relate to any of those pressures? You ever felt slighted or pressured or ridiculed or kind of left outside of the group because of your faith in Christ? Well, these pressures, along with living life in a broken world, can begin to deplete our hope, can it not? When your job's in jeopardy, your marriage is struggling, your health your reputation in the community, how do you maintain hope in the midst of all the various circumstances and trials of life? Peter writes to address this very issue. Now, it's Easter morning, right? And we're supposed to be happy and joyful because Christ rose from the grave. But I imagine that there are some of us here who feel anything but this morning. We're exhausted, not just because of the hour of the day, but because of life. We're frustrated. We're bitter. We're angry. We're disappointed. We're fearful. Feeling defeated and hopeless. We're starved for hope. 
As I mentioned earlier, we're created for hope, so this means that we are going to hope in something. And so the question then becomes this morning, are we placing our hope in the right place? Now some of us think that if we could just be a better, more faithful Christian, then things would be better in our lives. Or if we merely had a different set of circumstances, then we could have more content and joy. But if we're placing our hope in these wrong places, it will not result in change. For Peter reveals there's only one place for the Christian to place his or her hope this morning. And Peter was qualified to speak on this manner because he knew what it was like to feel hopeless. But yet he also knew what it was like to experience true and lasting hope as well. So as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus this morning, we're going to see from this passage this morning that Christ's resurrection provides us with at least three things. First, it provides us with a living hope this morning. It also provides us with an unfading inheritance. And then lastly, it provides us with a secure salvation. Peter says in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's reminding us of the reality of what we once were, but who we are now for those who are in Christ. He grounds the believer's current status in the great mercy that is shown to sinners who do not deserve it, like you and I. See, apart from Christ, each one of us is spiritually dead because of the sin that indwells our hearts. It's impossible for us to respond to the love and grace of God because of our dead spirit. We're condemned because of our sin. And it's only due to the mercy and grace and kindness of God that we have new life. And God chose us not because of anything special about us, but he chose to set his affections upon us and call us children of God. See, our salvation was accomplished by God sending forth Christ to live the perfect life we should have lived and to die a sinner's death, but to raise three days later from the grave, claiming victory, providing us with hope and eternal life. Now, it's precisely because Jesus was raised from the dead that you and I have any hope this morning. But Peter says we don't just have any hope. We have a living hope, he says. Now, when we talk about hope, many times we refer to hope as kind of this subjective up and down ebbs and flows of things, more of a feeling. We speak of it in kind of as wishful thinking. I hope I do well on this test. I hope it's not raining today. I hope that the Georgia Bulldogs win the national championship in the fall. It's precisely, though, this living hope that Peter speaks of. It's not a generic hope, he says. It's not a general, wishful kind of thinking. Right? Our hope as believers is a fruitful hope. It's a productive hope. It's a life-restoring, life-transforming hope, Peter says. This living hope is strong confidence in the power that God has to bring change in the daily lives. The fact that this hope is actually living indicates that it is a growing hope that increases over time as we walk closely 
with our Savior. We've experienced this being with older saints and all that they've weathered in their lives. We see how their hope is increasing over the years. It's a growing hope. I don't have to ask you if you know what it's like to feel hopeless because we've all had those moments. Peter was just like us. He spent three years under Jesus' leadership and direction in his earthly ministry. And Peter, like so many God-fearing Jews of the day, had longed for the day that the Messiah would come and set all things right again. When the Messiah would establish his kingdom rule, would overthrow the oppressive rule of Rome so that he could be rightly worshipped once again. But Jesus died on a cross and Peter witnessed this horrific event. And in Peter's mind, hope was lost. And to make matters worse, when Peter was confronted about being a Christ follower, he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. So not only had Peter lost hope in the world around him, he lost hope in himself because he saw himself as a failure. Well, it was the morning after the crucifixion, and the angel comes to the tomb, rolls the stone away, and is sitting on the stone, and sees Mary Magdalene and Mary sitting there, and he says, I know why you're here. You're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's raised from the dead just as he's promised he would, and I want you to go tell the disciples. And so Mary and Mary go back to tell the disciples, and John and Peter, upon hearing this news, They make a beeline to the grave. Peter's the first one that enters the grave. Can't you imagine why Peter was the first one that wanted to enter that empty grave? He was looking for hope wherever he could find it. But this time, this time he was looking in the right place. Because that grave was empty. Jesus had risen from the grave gaining victory. And Jesus appeared to his, in his resurrected state to his disciples, including Peter, and had a conversation with Peter. And though it took time, hope was restored in Peter's soul once more. Because God had made good on his promise. And Jesus had risen from the grave. See, Christ's resurrection changes everything for us this morning. See, it's the resurrection that guarantees our future resurrection while we await all the blessings that are ours in Christ because we are united to Him. And what's His is ours. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This living hope that we as followers of Christ receive through the resurrection of Christ must come to bear on how we approach and live our daily lives. Not just a historical event. No matter what circumstances we face, we are called to ask the Spirit to help us to line our attitudes, our emotions, our desires with this objective reality of this hope that we've been given in Christ. God's proven through raising His Son from the dead that He is for us. He's not against us. And Jesus is alive and He's present. 
and he cares for us in every moment of our day. But let me ask us, is gratitude the usual, usual response to God's mercy and grace in our lives when we run into problems at work or problems at home or in our parenting our children or in our other relationships? Is that how we naturally respond to his grace and mercy? Or do we blame God in our response, accuse him of withholding his kindness and his mercy to us? See, just because God's grace doesn't come in the manner and the form in which we would like it to, doesn't mean that he's not extending his grace in our lives. While we may not feel anything but hopeful, or hopeless, excuse me, our feelings do not negate the reality of this objective truth and this hope that has been given to us. So our responsibility is to ask the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, who indwells our hearts this very morning, to grow us in a greater practical belief in this living hope that we have been gifted. Not only does Christ's resurrection give us a living hope, but it also gives us an unfading inheritance. Peter speaks of this living hope in terms of an inheritance which he says is imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, it's being kept in heaven for you. Now it's impossible for us to think about something not breaking or fading or rusting and corroding. Right? Kids' toys, they break after minimal use. We're constantly having to make repairs to our cars or things in the house that break. Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't lay up for yourselves in treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. There's not a square inch in this entire world where sin has not unleashed its corrosive effects. And we feel it every single day of our lives. We come to expect loss and disappointment, don't we? Because we're so used to it. Whether it's the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, the loss of material possession, the loss of dreams, the loss of loved ones. But Peter says the believer has an inheritance that cannot be destroyed or made less glorious because it has been secured for us through Christ's resurrection. Now in the Old Testament, when you read the word inheritance, it referred to the promised land of Canaan that God was giving to his people. He was gifting to them. And it was this promise of the land filled with milk and honey that sustained God's people as they wandered around in the wilderness for so long. And like Israel, we're pilgrims. We're awaiting that promised inheritance. But unlike Israel, our inheritance is eternal. And Peter says it's imperishable. Now Israel's land was destroyed. They were taken into exile because of their disobedience. Not so with our inheritance. It is imperishable and can never be taken from us. Peter says that it's undefiled. The land of Israel was defiled by the pagan inhabitants and by Israel's sinful idolatry and the idols that they made. But again, not so with ours. Defilement is an impossibility. Lastly, he says that our inheritance is unfading. Canaan was destroyed by Israel's enemies, polluted. But because our inheritance is secure in heaven, it is free from pollution. Well, you may 
ask, well, what is our inheritance? What is this that's being secured for us? Peter says our inheritance is God himself. Right? We will experience fellowship and communion with him in the new heavens and the new earth, which is what we were created for. Sin will be done away with once and for all. Relationships with God and with others will be unhindered, free from conflict. No more pain, no more loss, no more disappointment, no more death, no more tears. And we'll have an ever-increasing knowledge of God as we sit at His table continually. As God's children, by the new birth, we're heirs with God, we're co-heirs with Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. So no one can steal our inheritance in Christ that he's obtained and secured through his resurrection. And it is because of this inheritance, this glorious inheritance that awaits us, that helps us to deal with the brokenness of this fallen world while we await that day. See, while we wait, we have to evaluate our lives. We have to ask ourselves, how do I respond to life in a fallen world? Where I experience so much loss and failure. When things don't seem to go the way I would like them to, and life just seems to be unraveling, where am I putting my hope and my trust? Are we treasuring the things of this earth, trying to find our hope in the tangible, created thing? In my retirement? In my material possessions that I own? Or do we look for an interim hope in the meantime to try to get us through the day, the dangling carrot of a vacation a few weeks away? Or do we find our rest and our comfort in the internal inheritance that Christ has secured for us through the cross and His resurrection? See, if we're in Christ, God has put away a spiritual trust fund with your name on it that cannot be taken away. Now, by the looks of your circumstances, you may say, well, I am anything but rich. You may not be rich in friends. You may not be rich in experiences and possessions and wealth. But the relative lack of present material rewards should not surprise us. Because if your faith is in Christ, we are marching towards unbelievable riches in Jesus Christ that we will experience for all eternity with Him in His presence. And God is safeguarding those for us while we wait. So this means there's no situation that we face in this life that can increase or diminish this inheritance that God has secured for us. It's absolutely impervious to anything that we face in this world. Therefore, our joy, our contentment, our usefulness in this life... It is directly tied to our apprehension and our understanding of this living hope. Because if our hope is set not on anything other, set on anything other than inheritance in Christ, then our usefulness, our joy in this life, will be diminished and it won't thrive. And Peter's revealing that the resurrection of Christ is not only future-oriented, but it's life-giving now while we await that day. 
No matter how many failures and losses you experience in this life, it's not the final word because there is a victory that has been secured for us. And at the same time, our successes are not the final hope and blessing because there's an inheritance far more glorious that we stand to receive. Lastly, the resurrection not only provides us with a living hope and an unfading inheritance, it also provides us with a secure salvation. Peter describes this glorious inheritance as a full salvation. If you look at verse 5, he says, "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time." In other words, not only is our inheritance being kept safe, but we are being kept safe for our inheritance. God has His children in protective custody, as it were, and nothing can take us from God's hands. Peter tells us that God is continually using His almighty power to guard His people through the means of faith. It's God's power that energizes and continually sustains us in our personal and individual faith. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this not of your own doing, but it's a gift from God. And so our faith is God's way of keeping us secure. So this means that there's both God's divine grace and gifting faith in Himself, but there's also human responsibility to exercise faith which results from such grace that God gives. And so this means that we can be fully confident not only in our past justification that He paid for our sins, and not only that we can be confident in our present sanctification that He is making us to look more like Himself, but that we can be fully confident in our future total possession of the blessings of our full salvation. Paul promises, Philippians 1, He, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is a promise that all who are God's will be carried by Him all the way to the finish line and not one of them will be lost. Peter conveys the strength of God's protection of us by using this military term, And it's translated as guarded, or maybe your translation says shielded. Why would Peter use such a strong military term that refers to the vigilant defense of a fortress? Well, it's because of what is at stake here. Now, we've already said what our inheritance is, but what does God get out of the deal? Why does he go to such great lengths to redeem a people to himself? It's because God's inheritance is you and me. You are who He desires. You are who He came to redeem. You are what He inherits. And so God calls us to a persevering faith that relies upon the power of the Holy Spirit because He wants to be with us for all eternity. Why does Peter speak of a living hope, an unfading inheritance, and a secure salvation that the Christian has through Jesus Christ's resurrection. It's because Peter knows how brutally hard and difficult this life is. And he knows that in this life we're going to face all kinds of things that are going to attempt to believe us, that we're act- make us believe that we're actually hopeless. And that there's really nothing that awaits us. And that we feel anything but secure in this life. 
And so he wants to show us that it's because God's great love and grace to his children that he's willing to do anything that is necessary to make his children look like his son through all the life's trials and circumstances that he brings into our lives. He's calling us to be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, and to stand firm in the face of life's many ups and downs because what awaits us is well worth the wait. Most of us probably have something made of gold in our possession, whether it's a a ring or a watch or a necklace. In order to produce that beautifully finished gold product that we enjoy, it has to go through a refining process, right? The gold has to be liquefied in a hot furnace and brought to a liquid state. And then borax and soda ash has to be added in order to remove the dross and all of its impurities. Because without the borax and the soda ash, the gold would not have its brilliant shine that we love to see. So the refinement process is essential and necessary to produce pure gold. God loves us so much that He necessarily boils us and refines us through all of life's various trials in order to purify us. He adds the borax and the soda ash by means of suffering, persecution, tests. He'll take us to places that we did not intend to go in order to produce in us Christ-like character that we could never experience in our own efforts. And He's intent on tempering the genuineness of our faith. And so in suffering and temptation hits and persecution not only should this not surprise us but we should not question God's faithfulness because we should see these things as God's redemptive love in action in our lives being played out because we are completely pure in Christ and so he is forming us to what is already true about us too often I judge God's graciousness to me based on the scale of what I think I need and how His grace should look. And in a word, it should look like comfort or ease. And sometimes God is gracious and kind to give us that. But many other times, He's willing to allow us to experience something more that He knows we need. The grace of refinement. And so God provides us with uncomfortable grace and often when grief and disappointment and loss come and we experience weakness and physical pain we wonder how did we get here and we think to ourselves or maybe we tell a friend I just just don't know where God is right now where's his grace in my life it's in those moments that you're experiencing God's grace not the way you want it but the precise way he knows you need it. The Apostle Paul refers to these type moments of refinement as slight momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. See, God wastes nothing on the difficult trials that he allows in our lives. Each one is designed by an all-loving Father to increase our joy and our victory. 
Peter says in verse 7, he says, We're grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason you and I are tested and we are given trials is so that we can look to the one who tends to us, who walks with us, who is proving to us an internal weight of glory. And we can give him praise, give him glory, because we know what awaits us. Therefore, we can have deep and abiding joy in the midst of hardship because we don't understand that the suffering that we face, the loss that we experience, is delivering to us what we crave. The salvation of our souls. And the salvation was purchased, secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen this morning and he's coming again. So we can live with unshakable hope. Not because things look good now. Not even that we're promised that things are going to get better in this life. But because that hope is grounded in the sure, unshakable reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you and I can live this day and tomorrow and the next day because we know there's an inheritance secured for us. And there's one who lives inside of us who will give us everything we need to endure the trial until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. For in the fact that we were hopeless, helpless, that you did not leave us alone. For you did the unthinkable. You took on flesh. You submitted yourself to the trials, the persecutions of this life. You suffered, though you did not have to. You lived in perfection. The perfection that we cannot live ourselves. And when you were put on the cross, you did not remain there. For you rose from the grave three days later. And it is in that hope, in that reality, that we rest our faith. And we thank you that in the midst of waiting, that we are not waiting on our own efforts, but you have given us the helper, the counselor, to minister to us, to provide us strength to endure every trial, every suffering that we experience. And Lord, we thank you that each one of those is not wasted and each one of those is purposeful and intentional to prove for us in our lives more Christ-like character so that we can be prepared for that day when we will stand spotless, blameless in your sight and to spend all eternity with you with communion and fellowship and intimacy that our hearts long for now. And so Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray that that day would not be far off. But in the meantime, that we would live with a living hope because we know that you are returning. You've said it and you will do it. And we thank you that your promises are sure. And we pray all these things in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of response, hymn number 310. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King of
faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Receive His blessing, His benediction as you leave this place. The grace of the risen Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. Amen.